Shepherd. If you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3, we're going to continue the discussion we began. We're still talking about faith, but we started to talk about a particular aspect of it. Hebrews chapter 3. We've talked about what faith is. We've talked about what faith isn't. We've talked a little bit about how to receive faith. Uh, we've talked about a number of aspects of faith. And now we're talking about uh, an aspect that's so important because it's one of the best ways to find out whether you're in faith or not. Like we've, as we've shared with you on a few nights, it's, it's sometimes we think we're in faith and we're not. There's a difference between faith and believing. We've talked about that. So you can believe something and not be in faith. We've talked about how to release your faith. What we're talking about now is the way to know whether you're in faith, and we're going to see the scriptures that say that this evening, and we, as we talked about the start of this two weeks ago, is faith rests. Faith rests. So Hebrews chapter 3, we're going to pick up, I think it's in verse 7, and we're going to see some instructions that the writer of Hebrews gave to the Hebrew believers. Starting in verse 7, we're going to read a, a little bit of scripture here tonight, but that's good for us. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today... Say today. today. If you hear His voice, now here's His instruction. So if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So He's going to compare what, what now this is talking to us today. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the day of rebellion. That means it's possible to hear His voice and, and harden our hearts. When your fathers tested me, this is God speaking, and tried me and saw my works for 40 years, talking about the children of Israel during their 40 years walk in the wilderness, and, and said, they always go astray in their heart, and they've not known my ways. Now, Hebrew, uh, Psalm 103, verse 7 says, Israel, it's the people he's talking about, they knew God's acts, his deeds, but Moses knew his ways. You may know some of my acts, but my wife knows my ways. She's lived with me for 43 years, and she knows what I'm thinking. She knows that look on my face. She knows when I'm tired, and I don't think I am. She knows if I'm a little bit crabby, and I don't think I am. I know you don't think I'd ever do that. She knows me. She knows my ways, and I know her ways, some of them. And, and, I, and, and there's always a mystery with a woman. And I can tell if something's bothering her, and I can sometimes have a pretty good idea of what it is. I start with me as a presumption, you know. <laughs> and uh, and my point is, is that knowing someone weighs, weighs is a result of knowing them. So you can know what somebody does and not know them. And that scripture is telling us Moses, the children of Israel knew about God. They saw the things that he did, but from those things they did not get to know him. Moses saw the same things, the same acts. But from those acts, Moses got to know him. Why? Because he listened to him. And the children of Israel did not listen to their God. And as a result, they really did not get to know him. Verse 10. Uh, verse 11. So I swore in my wrath that they should not enter my rest. Now what he's referring to in terms of them 
and we're talking about this a little bit on, on Sunday mornings, and we'll talk more about it this Sunday, is the story, for those of you who may not know, is that the children of Israel, God's covenant people, were in Egypt, and they were there 430 years. They ended up in a form of bondage under Pharaoh, and they cried out to God for deliverance. God already had a deliverer, Moses, prepared, called, prepared, and trained for 80 years for the moment when they would cry out for a deliverer. And when they cried out, he was ready. See, God's always ready to meet your needs. He's often waiting for you to cry out to him. He knows when you're going to cry out to him, and he already has the answer prepared. So when you cry out to God, it's not when he starts working on the answer. He already knew you were going to come to that place before you were born. And so God's already prepared the answer for you. And so when they cried out, God had Moses prepared as to deliver. He had to convince Moses a little bit. He sent him, and God performed ten tremendous miracles, the result of which is Pharaoh finally expels them from Egypt. They go through the, the Red Sea, which we talked about on Sunday, and now they're in the Promised Land. God brings them. His plan, that you could go from Egypt to the Promised Land in two, less than two weeks by a shortcut. But God said, I couldn't take them that by that way. See, he knew the people. He said, because I know that, because it was a major trade route. He said, I know that on the way they're going to see the Philistines. And when they see the Philistines, they'll turn back and go to Egypt. So God had to take them by a longer route, which was a year's route. And he'd take them down into the southern Sinai Peninsula, which is Saudi Arabia. And down at the bottom of that peninsula is Mount Horeb. And God called them to the foot of the mountain. And God came down on that mountain and revealed himself to them. And they pulled away from God. And they said, it's too scary. God's too awesome. Moses, you go talk to God and tell us what he said. And we'll do whatever he said. Well, they didn't. But that's what they said they'd do. And so also on that mountain, God gave them the Ten Commandments that they were to, to live by. God also on that mountain gave them instructions for building the tabernacle where they were to worship and, and meet with God through a series of sacrifices. God sets this entire system of relationship up with them and then works them for the rest of that, the rest of that year around and they come up to the edge of the Promised Land which is where Israel is today. They come up on the east side of the Jordan River and they camp at a place called Kadesh Barnea. And, and, and at that place, they send spies in. And when the spies come back, they, ten of the spies say, it's too difficult. Everything God said about the land is true, but there are giants in the land. There are fierce armies in the land. We're not able to take it. Two of the spies... Joshua and Caleb said, we are well able. We talked about that on Sunday. And they come back and they give a report. And as a result, this is what this is referring to. God wanted to send them into a land he'd prepared to them. And in that place was rest. That didn't mean they didn't work. We're going to talk about that. But in that place was rest. Everything they needed was provided for them in there. It was a land flowing with milk and honey, a land of abundance, a land that was easily, easily tilled, a land that was easily planted. They had to work, but there was no striving in that land. And God said, I will go before you and I will drive out the... There were enemies in the land, but God said, I'll drive them out before you. And when they finally got in there, that's exactly what happened. But this generation, when they saw the obstacles, when they saw with their eyes... When they saw enemies in the land that they were not expecting, they took their eyes off of the promise of God and they said, we cannot go in there. And because they said they couldn't go in, God could not take them in. You understand there are things God cannot do? God cannot overcome your unbelief. He'll have to work around your unbelief. God can do all things to those who believe. But even Jesus, it says in two places, he could not do mighty miracles in his hometown. And it tells you why. Because of their 
unbelief. Over and over again, Jesus says to people, be healed according to your faith, which means the healing was available to all of them, but it was those that had the faith and exercised that faith that received that. And we've talked about that. We talked about the the group in in Matthew chapter um, 14, the last two verses where it talks about how they saw that Jesus was in town and they brought out everybody that, that believed that if they just touched his garment, they'd be whole. But it says in the last verse, and as many as touched him were made whole. So there were some in the group that believed that if they touched him, they'd be made whole, but they didn't act on what they believed. And so they weren't made whole. It was only those that acted on what they believed. But any, everybody in that group could have been made whole. It was only those that acted on what they believed. So we've talked about all that before. So the rest he's talking about is a rest that was for the Israelites was the promised land. It was a place of rest. And he said to them, I'm not, I cannot take you in there, so you cannot enter into my rest. Why? Because of their unbelief. And we'll see that here more clearly. So I swore in my wrath, verse 11, that they shall not enter, notice, my rest. Not their rest, my rest. We'll see that more clearly in a minute. Verse 12. Now he's going to talk to us. Beware, brethren, lest there should be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief departing from the living God. But exhort or encourage one another daily, while it's still called today, lest any of you should be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. That's the danger of sin. Sin is deceitful. Will God forgive sin? Yes. But there is a deceitfulness that goes with sin. Because when we sin, especially if we choose to sin, because there is our intentional sin and there's unintentional sin where you just did something and you didn't plan but there's times we just outright know we're wrong and we go ahead and do it anyway that's intentional sin will God forgive it? yes but there's a deceitfulness of that sin and the deceitfulness is I got away with it I got away with it it's like, a, you know, I remember hearing Kenneth Copeland talk about, you know, the first time he tasted a cigarette. He, the, the way he was raised, he thought he'd, lightning would come out of heaven, strike him dead, and he'd immediately go to hell. So the first time he took a puff, he was very, he was waiting for the lightning to strike him. And he took this little breath, you know, and it's like, and nothing happened. So he was a little bolder with the next breath. By the time he finished the cigarette, he was cocky. Why, nothing happened. See, there's a deceitfulness in this because he thought nothing happened. There was no consequence to this because nothing happened immediately. There's a, the Bible says some of our sins go before us, which means they're obvious. But there's some that trail after us. And we thought we got away with it, but the consequences are still going to catch up with us. So there's a deceit. We're going to talk maybe a little later this year about sin. So don't miss that. I, want, I expect we're going to have the house packed when we talk about sin. <laughs> But we need to talk about sin. We need to know what it is. So much of the church today doesn't know what sin is. And we've got to know what sin is. That's one of the purposes of the law was to teach them what sin is. Now, the power, there was no power in the law to overcome sin, but sin's still sin. So some people say, well, there's no sin in the New Testament because we're under grace. Read chapter 6 of Romans. You don't understand grace. And so, so there's a deceitfulness of sin. And notice the danger of the deceitfulness of sin is it will cause you to harden your heart. God won't pull away from you, 
But the result of a hardened heart is you can walk away from Him. It's insanity to walk away from God, but that's what deceitfulness will do. We think we're all right. There's a powerful verse in Judges, and Pastor Ray was mentioning it to me the other day, and I was reading it the other day too, where Samson, they've cut his hair off. He, he finally gave in and told Delilah the source of his strength was in his hair. It wasn't in the hair. The hair represented a Nazarene vow. The source of his strength was his consecration to the vow he made to God. And when his hair was cut, it broke the vow. And when the vow was broken, the source of his supernatural strength was gone, and the, the Philistines came and jumped him, and they gouged his eyes out, and he got up to go after them, and it says he did not realize that the Lord had left him. So he tried to go out in his own strength and could not tell the difference between his strength and the Lord's strength in him until he exercised it. The deceitfulness of sin will cause you to harden your heart. And the way we do it is through unbelief. The way we do it is through unbelief. I used to think that faith was an option. Well, you know, some people, you can believe, you know, if you want to believe God for healing, that's fine, but, but if you don't, that's okay. And I'm not saying it, you know, but, but we ha- the Bible says the just shall live by faith. If you've been made righteous in God's eyes, the only way you've been made righteous in God's eyes is by faith in Christ Jesus. That's how we're born again. But we're to continue in that faith. Galatians 3 says, Having begun by the Spirit, are you now going to continue with God in the, in the flesh by your own works, by your own effort? No, you're not. You can't. All right. Well, let's move along here. Verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Oh boy, does that open up an issue we're not getting into tonight. While it is said today, if you, we, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Therefore, since a, now you can talk about us again. Since a promise remains of entering his rest... Let us fear lest any of you seem to come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, referring to the Israelites. But the word that they heard did not profit them. In other words, they heard the word that Moses spoke from Mount Sinai to them, but it did not profit them. Why? Because it was not mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter... That rest, as he said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter. Now this is, watch this. They shall not enter my rest. It's not your rest we're talking about. God has provided, and we'll see that said in a few minutes. God has provided a rest for his people. And the rest that he has provided for people, his people, is his rest. So it's not that He gives us rest. He has entered into His own rest. And if we believe Him and walk in our faith, 
then we will enter into His rest. That's so important to understand that difference. We will enter into His rest. Because if He has prepared a rest and He's resting in it, then we just have to join Him in something He's already made. Ever, ever have the all tight, and you come to somebody and they say, "Just relax." <sighs> the more they tell you the relax, the harder it is. That's like making yourself go to sleep. Wake up, you know. Somehow I wake up an hour after I've gone to I go to this deep sleep, and I wake up an hour later. You know, and, and, and the battle is to not think. So try not thinking about not thinking. Because when you think about not thinking, what are you doing? You're thinking. So the harder you try to not do some things, the more you do them. The harder you try to relax, the harder you try to rest, the less rest you get. That's your rest. But he's already prepared a rest. So all he's telling us here to do is he has a rest prepared for us and he wants us to enter into his rest. And we began to look at his rest last week and what that is. But notice that we're going to now see. What the, I had never seen this before until last week. As many times as I've read this and preached this and taught it. Verse 3. For we have believed to enter that rest. As he said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works, that's God's works, were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Hold something there and go with me to Genesis chapter 2. Now, Genesis chapter 1 is the beginning of the story of the creation, and of course it starts... It starts in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth... The earth was out formed and void, and the darkness was on the face of the earth. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, and it was good. God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, Let the firmaments be of the midst of the waters. So he separates the waters from the dry land. And then God finishes in verse uh, 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 8. And God called the firmament in the heaven. Called the, God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. And then God goes into the third day and says, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together. And goes on and on and on, and on and on and on. And verse 13, he says, And the evening and the morning were the third day. And verse 14, God said, Let there be lights. This is the fourth day now. And he created the lights and put the stars in the heavens. And God created two lights, one to rule over the day, one to rule over the night. And God set the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And, uh, and then, uh, let's see, verse 19, And the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Now on the fifth day, God said, let the waters abound in the abundance of living creatures. So he creates living creatures. And, he, and God blessed them. And said, uh, called them, said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters of the sea and let the birds multiply the air. Verse 23, so the evening and morning were the, morning were the fifth day. And the Lord said, said the earth, let the earth bring forth 
living creatures. And now he's going to go into the sixth day. And creeping things and beasts on the earth and every kind of thing. And so it was so in verse 25. And God made the beasts of the earth according to every kind. And God saw that it was good at the end of that verse. Verse 26, he makes his crowning creation. God said, let us make man. By the way, it's the only creation where he says in our image. And now go to chapter 2. And the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which we had, he had done. Now, we look at this verse, and as we often look at God from our perspective, what that would mean if we had done that. So if we had just finished six days of creating everything that's never existed before, we read all of that, and sometimes when you read it the way I did, you go, Whew. Say, boy, I need a break. You know, that's tiring stuff, creating the heavens and the earth. And especially tiring creating man. Because I know what that's going to mean. And we kind of assume that when it says, and God rested, it's because this is tough stuff. I've got to take a break. I need a day off. So I'm going to take this seventh day and I'm going to rest and just kind of Lounge around because I need a break. But we know that's not true about God because, first of all, look at what he had to do to create it. He didn't have to go out and go to Lowe's or Home Depot and collect all the stuff and bring it out. He didn't have to figure out the plans. He didn't have to get out there with a jackhammer and, you know, to separate the, the sea from the land. He didn't have to do any of that stuff. He just said, let there be. You understand the Bible says there's nothing hard for God. When you just speak words and they happen, it's not hard. So God didn't rest because he was tired. So the rest that we're invited to enter into is not because we're worn out. Now, you may feel worn out. We may talk about that later on. But the rest this is talking about is not because we're tired. Because it's his rest we're entering into, remember. His rest was not because he was tired It's because we just saw in Hebrews chapter 4, it's because his works were finished from the foundation of the world. He rested because the work was done. I'm going to say that again. He rested because there was no more work to do. He rested because he'd finished what he set out to do. And when I read those words in Hebrews chapter 4, what went off on me is he finished everything he was going to do. And that means when you have a need and you go to God and you call out to him to meet your need, when you call out to him is not when he starts to meet the need. He prepared for the meeting of your need before the foundation of the world because I got news for you he's still resting the work is done the Bible talks about Jesus now as what where is he he's where he's where he's seated at the right hand 
of the Father. Why? Because his works done. Because the last words he uttered is, it is finished. So when you cry out to Jesus for a need, he doesn't get up off his throne, come down here and run around and figure out what am I going to do for you. He doesn't get off the throne because what you needed was completed when he was raised from the dead. What you needed was finished on the cross because Jesus said, it is finished. So he entered into his father's rest. His father's not striving over what to do. Jesus is not striving over what to do. Why are we striving over what to do? When, when Jesus said to his disciples, apart from me, you can do nothing. So the father's sitting here resting. The son's sitting at his right hand resting. And we're over here trying to figure out what in the world are we going to do? I need help. Gary, I need help. Come on, let's pray. Let's get something done. Oh, Chris, I need help. Come on, we got, we got to come. We got to get together. We got to pool our resources together. And he's over there resting. And he said, apart, apart from me. Where is he? Resting. resting. When I'm running around like a chicken with my head cut off, I'm apart from him. Because he's resting. And apart from him, what can I do? Nothing. So why am I running around trying to do everything apart from Him when He's already told me it's not going to amount to anything. You can do nothing apart from me and I'm resting because it's done. It's done. It's finished. So how come it's not finished in my life? Because you don't believe it's finished. I'm not out there trying to get a black suit. Wouldn't that be funny if I were trying to get a black suit since I've got one on? I mean, if I wanted another one, that'd be different. Why would I strive to get something I already have? So if I'm striving to get something, that means I don't think I have it. Because if I have it, I rest. I stop trying to get it because I have it. And he paid for it. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ has redeemed me. Has redeemed me. Bought, has, past tense. Not will, has redeemed me from the curse of the law. Go read Deuteronomy chapter 28, starting in verse 16, all the way to the end, and you'll see what's included in the curse of the law that He redeemed you for. And since He redeemed me, past tense, He's sitting down. He's resting because His work is done. And I'm over there trying to get out of all those curses. And while I'm trying to get out of all of them, I'm apart from Him, 
because he's sitting here in his father's rest. He entered into his father's rest. And his father's resting because in his mind, he finished all this regarding you before the foundation of the world. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, we just, it's worthwhile taking some time in this. Let's go to Romans chapter 8. I can quote it, but I, wanna, I, I want you to see it. Just a little aspect of this regarding you. Verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined or planned ahead of time to be conformed to the image of his Son. So, he, whoever God foreknew, that just means knew ahead of time, he planned ahead of time that they be conformed to the image of his Son. That he, his Son, might be the firstborn of many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, And whom he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, how did you get into the body of Christ? He called you. None of us called him. You're not here tonight because he accepted your invitation. Not because he accepted your plea. The Bible says no one comes to him unless he draws them. You are a child of God tonight because He called you. Jesus told His disciples in John 15, He says, You didn't call me, I called you. That's significant. That's something you ought to spend some time meditating on. It. The God of all creation. The God of all creation. Who could have anybody chose you. I mean, you're here. You're proof. The fact that you're here is proof. He chose you personally, individually. And if we had time tonight to hear the testimonies of each one of you of how he called you and what he had to go through to get you to respond, you would find for each one of us there's a different story because he knew what it took to get you to answer his invitation. That's how important you are to him. But what I want you to see is he called you and planned for you It says in Ephesians 1, before the foundation of the world. So in Hebrews 4, where it says his works were finished before, you're part of that finished work before the foundation of the world. Before your parents' 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 grandparents' great-parents' parents were even a twinkling in their parents' eyes. Before Adam was on this earth, he saw you. And he had already made... See, we have trouble grasping that because we live in something called time. And in our realm of existence, everything has a beginning and an end. God does not live in time. So to him, everything's now. Everything's today. To him, the cross is real today. That's how he could see you when he created. Because he sees through time. He sees the end from the beginning. And he saw you 
and planned for you and prepared everything for you you were ever going to need before the foundation of the earth. And then he rested because he was finished his work. Now, turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Moses is up on the mountain and God is giving him some instructions. And if we were to go back and read in the beginning, you'll see these are what we call the Ten Commandments, not the Ten Suggestions. Verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day. Now, the word Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat, which is the word when it says, and God rested, that word is Shabbat. And so Sabbath comes, it's the English, the the, the Anglicization of Shabbat, which is rest. Remember the rest day, and notice that, keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. It's His Sabbath day. It's His day. In it you shall do no work, nor shall your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your cattle, your stranger was within your gates. For in six, this is why, because in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day, the Sabbath day, and hallowed it. Now, what God had them doing was a training for what He has prepared for us. So the Sabbath day to us does not mean that we can't do physical work. We are to, what's holy to us is the reason behind the, was, is the, re, the rest is the holy part. His rest is holy. That's what I want you to see. The fact, because he was done, he was finished with his work, and now he's at a place of rest. And he called that holy, sacred to him. Now let's go back to Hebrews chapter 4. And go back to verse 4 again. We'll reread that. For he has spoken in a certain place, well, we've now seen where that certain place is, of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Talking about the children of Israel. Now look, at he's now talking to us again. Since therefore it remains that some must enter, or force some to enter, and those to whom it was first preached, the children of Israel, did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, referring to the Psalms, Today, after such a long time that has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua, the one who finally led the second generation into, into the promised land, if Joshua had given them rest, then he, God, would not afterwards have spoken of another day. In other words, he's saying the rest that the Old Testament talks about in the promised land was, was simply a, re, a symbol of the rest 
that, that God is talking about to us. In other words, if that's the rest God was talking about, if the rest that God was talking about in these scriptures was the rest that, jo- jo- that Joshua gave them when they finally entered, then the Psalms wouldn't talk to us today about a rest. So in other words, there's another rest for the people of God. That's just a symbol of the rest that God has for us. Let me stop right there, just because some of you, I don't know some of the background that some of you have. There are some people that teach that Egypt represents, and it is a type of the world, when we lived in the world. And there's some people that teach that the Canaan land or the promised land is a type of heaven. And there's a logical progression to that because you go through a wilderness and this life can be considered a wilderness. The problem with that is it breaks down when you get into the promised land and discover that there were about 30 kings that they had to overcome and kick out. And I guarantee you, there are no enemies in heaven that you will have to kick out in order to occupy the place that God has for you. No, Canaan land represents the place of rest that we are all to enter into in this life. It's not heaven. It's a place of rest. Because that's what he says. It doesn't ever say heaven is Canaan land. It tells us it's the place of rest in this life. Okay. Rest from what? Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. All right. That's verse 8. Verse 9. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest... Now, this is going to tell you what that rest is like to us. For he who has entered that rest... That means it's possible that some of us have entered into it. Because he's not talking about something that that you haven't achieved yet. He said there's some of you that have entered into it, but he's giving a warning to some that haven't entered into it yet. So if some have already entered into it, that means it's entered into in this life, not in the next life. Are you following me? And some of that are into it. And now he's going to tell you what that rest is. For he who has entered into his rest. Now in my Bible, the his is with a capital H. That's God's rest, not your rest. He who has entered into God's rest has also ceased from his own works as God did from his works. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter into, or the New American, I think, says to labor, King James says, let us labor or work to enter into that rest. That sounds like a paradox. But the labor to enter into the rest is to develop and exercise your faith that God has already finished His work that He's paid for for you. So if you went back and read the first four or five chapters of Romans, you'll find it's so very clear in there. Paul says there's two ways you can get to heaven. There's two ways you can be made righteous. But he tells us ahead of time only one of them works. One way is under the law, which is to perfectly fulfill every commandment that God gave to Moses. And Romans 4 makes clear that if you do that, then you are able to pat yourself on the back and take some credit for your righteousness. But if you read chapter 3, you found that you can't do it. Because he says in there, there's none of us righteous. None of us measure up. You see, because God's standard is perfection. 
His standard is if you ever broke one of the commandments once, in thought, word, or deed, you broke them all as if you broke them all every day. Galatians and then Hebrews earlier goes on to explain that the purpose of the law was never so that we'd be made righteous. It was to show us that no matter how good we try to be, we fall infinitely short of God's standard. Well, then what do we do? Well, the second method of righteousness, which is what God is directing us to, is righteousness by faith in what Jesus did on the cross. So if we put our faith in what Jesus did on the cross and we've learned that faith acts as if it's so, then we will begin to act as if his work is complete in us. Does that mean we don't need to grow? Not at all. Of course we need to grow. But we don't need to grow and mature in order to be accepted by God. We don't need to grow and mature in order to become a child of God. We may need to grow and mature to become a mature son of God. But you're already... See, our, we, we loved our children when they were in, our mother, in, in her womb. Before we ever saw them, they loved us. And they couldn't do anything, good or bad, while they were in their mother's womb. Now, she may not have liked some of the things she felt, because the last time there were two of them in there. And they went full size. So she was uncomfortable, but we, we didn't know even what the, we did, because in those days we didn't even know what they were, male or female. And yet we loved them before they'd done anything good or bad. Why? Because they were our children. When you come to Christ and put your faith in Him, you become a child of God. Now, as they grew up, there were times they did things we did not like. They may still do things we don't necessarily think are the best judgment because you're always a parent. But they're always our children. It doesn't change their status with us. And so once you put your faith in Christ, yes, we are, there's a process of growing and maturing, but it changes everything. The Bible says you've been removed from the dominion of darkness, Satan's Colossians 1.13, and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. Why? Because you're another child of God along with him. John chapter 17 says that he loves you as much as he loves Jesus. That's an astounding verse. But it's in there, and it's in red. That they might know that you love me, them, even as you love me. First John chapter 3 says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. And such we are. And it's not yet shown what we shall be like, but we know this, that when we see Him, we shall be like Him. And everyone that has that hope purifies themselves. That's who you are. That's why you need to talk to yourself and declare to yourself who you are in Christ. Here I go again. I'm sorry, Pastor Ray. This is a little book. We pulled it out. My wife and I pulled it. I said, I need, I need another copy of it. A little book by Kenneth Hagin called In Him that's filled with every scripture in the Bible that says who you are and what God's done for you Amen. in Him. And you need to take some of those scriptures and just say them over yourself. I'm a child of the living God. Why? Because the Bible says so. Because I did what the Bible said you got to do. I put my faith in Christ. And because I put my faith in Christ, I don't have to run around and struggle and strive to see how, what I've got to do to please Him. Because you see, when He did the work, He sat down and rested. Now my job is to sit down and rest too and rest in what He did. I don't have to become a child of God. I am a child of God. 
So I need to enter into His rest and stop trying to... See, it's, this is that delicate balance. Because Ephesians 2.8 says that we are saved by grace unto... We are His workmanship unto good works. We're saved by grace, and that's received through faith. Unto good works. I expect my children to do something when they're growing up. I expect them to grow and mature and become productive. I expect them to produce something, but it doesn't change whether I love them, and it doesn't change whether they're my child or not. They're my child because they were born out of us. That's why I love this. There's a verse in, in the story of the prodigal son. I, mean, I, I think I was, I was in the middle of preaching this. I may have been on a radio program I did once. And I'm going down. There's a place where the son's rehearsing his speech. And he comes back to his father and saw the father said, I no longer deserve to be your son. And he launches into a speech. And it dawned on me, he didn't get to become his son because he deserves it. You don't become the son of your father because you did things right. In fact, you had nothing to do with becoming the, parent, the child of your parents, did you? You didn't choose them. You may have changed. You may have wished you had a choice, but you didn't choose them. You had nothing to do with them. You were the result of the expression of their love, hopefully for each other. And they were. You were born, and they. they, they you know, assuming everything was. You know, they're good parents. They loved you because that you were theirs, not because you did everything right or wrong. So his thinking wasn't right. But that's where our thinking so much is. I don't deserve to be your child, but I want to be a good servant in the kingdom of God. But see, we represent to other people the relationship that we see we have with God ourselves. You'll only sell what you believe in. And you'll only communicate to others about God what you know about Him yourself. We can communicate things in our head we don't yet believe in our heart. And the proof of it is, of where you are, is are you striving? Do you have confidence to come before him to pray when you haven't necessarily done everything that you're supposed to do? Because I want to show you. We'll finish this chapter. I want to show you how this fits in. I want to drop down. Because he talks about uh, uh, verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that restless. Anyone should fall through the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the vision of the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, and is discerner of thoughts and tents of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. Look at this, verse 14. Seeing then that we have such a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. He's talking now about how to enter into the rest. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in always tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Why can we come boldly to the throne of grace, grace to receive help and mercy in time of need? Why? Because he's finished the work. And he said that you don't have to run around and get your ducks all in order before you can come talk to him. Why? Because he got your ducks in order when he sat down. On the cross, he got your ducks in order. Does that mean everything's in order in your life? No, no. That's what the Holy Spirit's in you to do. That's why you need to come to the throne of grace. Notice it doesn't say, come boldly to the throne of grace when you finally have everything in order. You got it under control. Now come to the throne of grace. No! 
He says when you don't have it in order, when you have lost control of it, when you don't even remember where parts of you are, when you fall and stumble and you got, you're made a mess of your life, that's when you... Notice, he doesn't say creep in. Because you don't know how you're going to be received. I mean, this, this, is, this, this bends our religious mind until it snaps and it needs to snap. When you have messed up, he says, come, not ba- arrogantly, not brashly, but boldly. The boldness means I know I have a right to come. Why? Because he's a faithful high priest. And he's finished his work. He's rested and stopped his own work for your salvation and deliverance because it's done. And when he sat down, he entered into his father's rest because his father had finished it before the foundation of the world. So what are we to do? We're to labor to, to work to enter the rest. The work is renewing your mind until you come to the place where you believe that that is the truth over your life. And you'll know you've hit that place when you also stop striving and you can just be at peace and just be a child of the living God. Because a child of the living God will come boldly for his needs. A child of the living God will come with confidence that his father hears him. Does it mean that child of the living God cannot make mistakes? Of course not. But even when we make mistakes, we'll have confidence to come boldly to the throne of grace because we're not, our relationship has not been destroyed. Our fellowship can be affected, but our relationship will not be destroyed. He will be your father and you will be his child because he will not pull that back from you. Because the basis of your salvation is not on what you did. The basis of your salvation is what on he did. I'm not going to get into whether you can walk away. I'm getting into, because you're not walking away. You're coming to the throne of grace, right? Okay. Let's labor to enter into his rest.